0: Welcome to this podcast from the Pod Academy. I'm Tanjul Rashid, and I'm discussing the Syria conflict with Middle East expert Michael Binion. One of Britain's preeminent foreign correspondents, he's reported from all over the Middle East. And as a former diplomatic editor, now leader writer at the Times, he's helmed the Middle East coverage of Britain's most influential newspaper. He'll be bringing with him his wealth of experience and expertise to explain to us the ongoing events in Syria. Let's start at the beginning. Why did the Syrians decide to rise up around March 2011?
1: I think it was probably the influence of the Arab Spring in other countries. Nowadays, Arab television viewers and those who have social media take a very keen interest in what's happening elsewhere, and they had seen what had been happening in Egypt and in Tunisia, and I think there were a number of people who thought that they wanted to make a point in Syria, so we had demonstrations, mostly by school children, in Dara, which is when it began and where it began, which is a town right down in the south of Syria on the borders with Jordan. And it was, to some extent, a kind of signal that they wanted a dialogue, they wanted political reform, they wanted change, they wanted movement in a country where we had seen very little of this. But some countries in the Arab world haven't been influenced
0: by the Arab Spring and haven't risen up. What conditions existed in Syria that instigated this uprising?
1: Well, I think almost all countries felt some uh, effect of what had happened in Tunisia and then Egypt. Uh, Yes, Algeria wasn't affected. They, for their own special reasons, partly because they'd had a long civil war, uh, didn't uh, react really to the move for greater democracy. Uh, And I think there was a feeling there that nothing would happen that hadn't already happened and would lead to catastrophe. But almost all the other Arab countries, to some extent, had some sort of uh, reaction to the movement in Tunisia especially and Egypt and Libya. In Syria, I think the conditions were ripe in that there had been very little political dialogue for a long time. The Ba'ath party and particularly the government of Hafez al-Assad and his son Bashar al-Assad had more or less uh, been immovable, they they are immovable, they had very little uh, dialogue with the rest of the country, it was a minority government by Alawites, who are a religious minority within Syria, and they had not actually changed much for many, many years, and there was just a general feeling of frustration. So would you say
0: it was a general malcontent among the entire Syrian population, or was it? in any way concentrated amid particular sectors of Syrian society?
1: Well, I think there are two things. It was a malcontent over certain issues, particularly corruption. There was a real, real anger at the way the ruling clique, the family around Assad and his brother-in-law and his extended family and several others, were actually using their position to enrich themselves tremendously and it had become very blatant and there was a feeling that the Arab world uh, in particular was getting rid of some of these corrupt cliques and Syria too would like to do the same. There was also of course discontent particularly among uh, the Sunni Muslim heartland.
0: That's right, so how does the sectarian situation in Syria play into this
1: current conflict? Well I think it's at the root of the whole thing. Uh, There is a thirst for revenge in some areas particularly in the Sunni groups in Homs and Hama for what happened in 1982 when Assad's father Hafez al-Assad turned his army on Hama where the Muslim Brotherhood had staged an uprising, a revolt against the Damascus Authority and was brutally put down. It was not very well known at the time, there were no uh, social networks, there was no podcasts, there were no iPhones or anything of that kind, so not much news of it came out. But up to 20,000 people were killed in that operation. And of course, for the families of those who were massacred, there was an eternal vengeance, a uh, promise of vengeance. And I think many of the people who are most deeply antagonistic to Assad are those who are associated with what happened in Hama.
0: The massacre in Hama in 1982, Hafez al-Assad succeeded in putting it down Had a great... Uh human cost. What makes this uprising different?
1: I think because the eyes of the world are now on Syria, it's not easy now to just turn your guns and your army and your air force onto a city and smash it to pieces. Without the world reacting much more vigorously, we now know the human cost of what's happened. We know the massacres that have taken place in various cities and provinces and villages. We know what families have suffered. We know the kind of almost personal vendettas. We knew nothing about that 30 years ago.
0: So you think the role of the global media has been quite influential in stoking the conflict? in I think it's been very
1: influential, as it was, of course, in Egypt and also in Tunisia. The whole of the Arab Spring, if one can still use this term, has been very much driven by and influenced by social media and the fact that people have instant communication with each other, both to organise protests and to see what's been going on elsewhere. After all, in Syria, we wouldn't know anything about what was happening there unless we had seen what people have been broadcasting on their mobile phones. No journalists from outside have been allowed in to report fairly and unhampered what's been going on, only a few people who've been very much tracked and monitored by government minders.
0: The opposition in Syria say that the uprising started off peacefully, while the Assad regime insists that the opposition are terrorists who were violent from the outset. What's the truth? The truth is
1: probably somewhere in the middle, though a bit closer to what the opposition say. In other words, it did start off as a peaceful protest. It was, by many uh, standards, a fairly uh, liberal, innocuous affair of people simply calling for reforms, greater human rights, greater freedom of expression, a more normal kind of political atmosphere. It quickly changed into a more bitter struggle because with the violent government repression of what happened in Dara, you brought in a lot of angry tribes who began to look at the government as a tribal enemy. And then you got into much more fundamental loyalties. And it's also true that among the opposition groups there were some who right from the start had seen this as a chance to get even with the Alawites. Uh, This is uh, particularly an area where fundamentalists, uh, Sunni, uh, uh, al-Qaeda linked groups, uh, saw an opening and have been quick to seize it.
0: So do you think that Syria is reverting to a more primal, tribal, sectarian Conflict at the moment.
1: Yes, I do, but it's extremely complicated because there are so many different splits and divisions within Syria.
0: It's so who a whole patchwork. So you have the Free Syrian Army uh, and the Syrian National Council. What constitutes the opposition in, in those fronts?
1: It's made up of a whole number of different groups and players. As you said, the Syrian National Army. Well, this is a fairly loose arrangement of defectors from you the mean Syrian, Free Army. Syrian Army. Yes, the, sorry, Free Syrian Army, that's right, yes, yes, I don't want to confuse it with the actual Syrian army. Uh, but defectors from the actual army have gone over and formed this free group, but equally you have tribal and then ethnic groupings. You have, of course, the religious divisions, that's the Alawites, who are an offshoot of Shia Islam. You have the Druze, who are some way back in the past originally another offshoot from Islam. You have a fairly sizeable Christian minority, which is rather caught in the middle of all this, and then you have the Kurds and you have other ethnic groups that are different from the Arab majority. So you have so many divisions and such a patchwork of loyalties uh, that the opposition is to some extent a coalition of all those who feel that at the moment they're excluded from power.
0: You mentioned Al-Qaeda. What evidence is there that there are Al-Qaeda operatives in Syria
1: at the moment? The evidence is more or less anecdotal. Uh, There are a number of people who have said that they have seen people from outside. They've even mentioned uh, Chechens, for example, who've come across. They've mentioned uh, people from Europe, uh, Islamists who've come even from Britain to fight uh, with groups in Syria that uh, appear to be uh, certainly from outside, from their appearance, from their accent, from their obvious ethnic differences. Uh, And I think the uh, Al-Qaeda themselves have made it clear that they do have influence and are very much engaged in the struggle. You will just hear it from some of the statements they have put out calling on Al-Qaeda loyalists to go and fight and help overthrow the Assad regime. It's anecdotal. I think to some extent, though, there have been eyewitnesses of uh, people who've seen others clearly not from Syria. If there's evidence that
0: there are some very unsavoury groups in the Syrian opposition, do you think the West, Britain, America and also the Gulf states and Turkey are making a mistake in supporting the opposition so strongly?
1: I think there's a real worry now in some of the centres of uh, Western decision-making that maybe they don't want to overcommit themselves. There has been an attempt to hold the opposition to a set of values, to get them to pledge uh, democratic commitments and things of this kind. I have to say, not with much success. The opposition is very fragmented and there is a worry that uh, Britain, uh, America, France, the West in general could very much find themselves tied to a group that has some fairly unsavoury characters in it without very clear uh, democratic objectives. Uh, And indeed, the West could find itself sucked into basically a civil war.
0: Yes, and and, and the Syrian National Council that's mainly based in the West offer a lot of kind and and democratic and secular rhetoric. But is there not a discrepancy between the aims and objectives of the Syrian National Council and, and the Free Syrian Army inside Syria?
1: Yes I think there is. There's a discrepancy and there's a discrepancy between what's being said outside Syria and what is actually happening on the ground. Now no one doubts that there have been terrible massacres perpetrated by the government and by its kind of thuggish militias that have been going around massacring people. But equally there have been credible reports of pro-government groups either being kidnapped or certainly being shot at, seized, massacred in various places and people taken prisoners certainly and held as hostages. Uh, I think both sides have now descended to a level of brutality uh, and retaliation that is pretty unsavoury. But do you think it's still possible
0: for the opposition to claim the moral high ground here?
1: Well, they're doing so at the moment, but I think they have to show very much that they are abiding by their democratic rhetoric, that they are ready to admit the difference of opinions with each other, they're ready to be more inclusive, they're not simply a Sunni anti-Alawite group who are seeking revenge for Hama, that they are inclusive of minorities, including or essentially the Druze and the Christians and others who at the moment are very, very frightened of being steamrolled by a Sunni uh, majority and possibly Islamist agenda.
0: Do you see any parallels with Afghanistan in the way the West backed the
1: Taliban and other Mujahideen to expel the Russians? To some extent, but not really. I mean, the West backed the Taliban and, well, their Taliban hadn't existed, but they backed certainly Mujahideen and Islamist groups uh, using whatever uh, opportunities they had to fight the Soviet presence and get rid of the Russians, and then they began to pay the price. Uh, at the moment, the West hasn't really intervened physically in Syria. They are helping supply arms, but even there they're being quite cautious, although arms are coming through, especially through the Turkish border. But the West, I think, has been very, very careful not to go beyond a certain point of involvement. Possibly with the example of Afghanistan in their minds, and cautious because they know that they are not quite sure uh, which groups exactly are using the arms to do what.
0: Let's talk a little about how the Syrian conflict is affecting the wider situation in the in the Middle East. There's a lot of talk bandied about at the moment about the Shia Crescent, Iraq, Iran, Hezbollah control of Lebanon, Syria. Do you think this? Is overstated, the importance of the the, the Shia alignment, or is it one of the fault lines that will shape the future of the Middle East?
1: I think it's slightly overstated if you look at the actual strength of this alignment. Certainly there are Shia groups uh, in Lebanon, a very important group, Hezbollah particularly, but they're not the only group and by no means controlling the whole of Lebanon. But it's not overstated if you look at it through the eyes of people such as the Saudis, who are very very worried and frightened of what they see as Iran spreading its influence all around their borders. The Saudis are in a fairly jumpy state at the moment anyway because of their um, slightly uh, unsure constitutional future with an aging monarchy and uh, a no clear line of succession or at least a line of succession that depends on very very elderly people. Uh, They have bitterly resented Iranian influence. They feel vulnerable even in their own eastern provinces uh, where Shia have been in revolt for quite a long time. And they see the hand of Iran all around them and especially they see it in Syria. And this is one reason why the Saudis have been so uh, vociferous and also uh, generous in supporting the insurgents in Syria. They are very worried about it. To my mind, the Syria conflict
0: is tearing up many past assumptions and, and tired narratives about. The Middle East, for example, now we find the Gulf States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, America, the West, and Hamas all on the same side. And Hamas and Hezbollah, who were previously thought to be allies, are are now on opposing sides. Uh, In what ways do you see that past assumptions are are changing because of the
1: Syria conflict? This is very typical of the Middle East. It's a kaleidoscope, and you twist it and change it, and suddenly the pattern is completely different. And this is not the first time we've had a a real shake-up of alignments and uh, political landscapes. One or two things still hold good, namely Syria's support from Iran, which actually dates back a long, long time and goes back to the rivalry between the two Ba'ath parties uh, in Iraq and Syria. And on the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend, uh, the Iranians supported Syria because Syria was very antagonistic to Iraq. But you have all sorts of new factors brought into this. Uh, Israel, for the moment, is slightly on the sidelines, which is just as well, because that could be a very destabilizing and complicating factor. But a new actor has been brought in in a very big way, and that is Turkey, which up till now has had very little influence in the Middle East. But with the Islamist government of Erdogan, uh, Turkey is actually a very, very powerful player in the region, and particularly, of course, uh, with Syria, because it is a neighbor And it is a country that previously was very supportive of Assad and is perhaps now the most hostile to him. So what the Turks do will be absolutely crucial to the future of Syria.
0: That's right. I remember when I was in Syria once, just after Israel's operation castled in Gaza, and uh, Erdogan had had made this speech denouncing the Israelis. And when I was in Damascus, I remember seeing banners put up by the regime congratulating the great President Erdogan, which I'm sure have been all taken down now. If you look at the way Turkey has changed sides, do, do you think these alliances will hold good for a, wh- a while to come? Or? Well,
1: they never have in the past. All alliances have been pretty temporary and they are expedient. I mean, if you look at Syria's involvement, for example, in Lebanon, at one point they supported the Christians, at another well, they point they supported... Well, they came supporting
0: the Maronites, didn't well, they? Well, indeed.
1: In and uh, then they supported the Palestinians and they switched sides here and there look at for example various other different alliances uh, who has been pro-Palestinian, who has been anti-Palestinian how often uh, at one point Syria was a strong supporter of the alliance created in the first Gulf War to expel Iraq from Kuwait and Syria very enthusiastically took part in that Uh, that was uh, Syria coming in as it were as an ally of the United States well that's certainly not the case now Uh, these things go back and forth according to the situation Um, Turkey is a very interesting example. Uh, As you said there were uh, very strong uh, links between the two governments until about a couple of years ago and the Turks felt that Syria was a key ally in pacifying certainly their turbulent eastern areas where the Kurds are very powerful. Now of course that's all changed and Syria is once again supporting the Kurdish insurgency against the Turks and so it is very often who is with me, who is against me, who is my enemy's enemy, and who is my friend's friend.
0: You mentioned the Kurds. What uh, likelihood do you think is there that um, the Syria conflict will spill over into Lebanon, into Turkish, Kurdish areas? It's already happening. Uh,
1: In Lebanon, there are already battles taking place between pro-Syrian and anti-Syrian groups, especially in the north of the country. There is a Shia uh, population in the north. They are feeling slightly under pressure now, uh, as the Sunni groups in Lebanon are larger and there have been uh, killings and uh, battles going on in villages and towns around Tripoli in the north of Lebanon. Uh, There are of course shellings across the border, there is hot pursuit as the Syrians try to pursue uh, those who have escaped from Syria and sought refuge in Lebanon. It is having a very destabilizing effect not to mention the fact that one of the big players as we've spoken about uh, is Hezbollah in Lebanon and they are really uh, unsure now whether they can rely on Syria for their weapons and for their influence given the fact that the other group that uh, used to be pro-Syrian and pro-Assad in the Gaza strip uh, is Hamas who have turned decisively against Syria. So it does vary very much according to how the how the war uh, in Syria, the civil war, which I think it now is, how it, how it fluctuates and goes up and down. And, of course, the non-aligned
0: movement in, in Tehran. President Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood President of Egypt, uh, denounced Syria and also, to an extent, Iran, uh, inside Iran. H- how are, are other nations involved with the Arab Spring involved in the Syria conflict?
1: Well, most of them are fairly preoccupied with what's going on in their own country. And in fact, most are fairly exhausted by the turbulence that they've experienced. This is certainly the case for Egypt. Uh, It's true, yes, President Morsi has been to Tehran, the first visit by an Egyptian President there since 1979 he is trying to reach out and play the responsible statesman but I think at the same time he's pretty preoccupied by the still unresolved constitutional issues within Egypt and that's also true in Tunisia and even more so in Libya where the post-Gaddafi settlement is far from clear and where there's a lot of tribal rivalry and enmity and most of these countries are looking to Syria possibly as an example of what could happen if everything goes wrong As a sort of salutary lesson of what they must avoid. But I don't think any of them are really uh, deeply engaged in Syria. It's just too difficult and too remote from their own concerns.
0: In Libya, Britain, France and America intervened quite strongly militarily. Why do you think they are not doing the same in
1: Syria? Well, several reasons. The first is there's absolutely no appetite among public opinion in the West, in either Europe or the United States, to get involved in yet another conflict with a Muslim country in a turbulent region. And the feeling is that after Iraq and Afghanistan, which have cost so much in both money and lives, there is no wish to stir up that turbulent area again. That's the first reason. The second reason is because military intervention simply is is impossible. I mean, it's not clear what the target would be, where one would intervene, who you would separate, what the objectives would be, and how you would exit.
0: But what about, say, a no-fly zone?
1: Well, a no-fly zone in principle is fine, and it would have to be along the border between Syria and Turkey, but the problem is patrolling it. If you have a no-fly zone, you have to enforce it, and that means sending planes up and down the area to make sure that the Syrians don't try to uh, bomb the people who take refuge in that zone. Now the Syrians have a very sophisticated air defence system supplied by the Russians that's in full working order and that has been by no means eliminated and unless the Allies actually undertook a bombing campaign first to eliminate uh, Syrian air defences then it wouldn't work because the patrol planes in the no-fly zone would be shot out of the air. Now to actually uh, launch a mission to disable Syrian air defences, that's quite a big operation. That is military intervention on a big scale straight away. And I think the West hasn't reached that stage yet.
0: You mentioned the Russians. Uh, why do they see it as in their as being in their interests to support Assad? Uh,
1: there are several reasons for this. First of all, because the Russians have a very big investment in Syria and have had for many years. Their main investment, of course, is their use of Tartus, the port on the Mediterranean, where the Russians are able to base their ships and it is their only access to the Mediterranean. It's their only warm water port as it were. It's not completely under their control but they have uh, permission to use it extensively and for them that's extremely important. Secondly, there is a very large Russian presence in Syria, at least 10,000 people, most of them military advisors and uh, other people who take a fairly close interest in government affairs. So they're quite closely tied to the present government. Thirdly, it's a question of example. The Russians have had an alliance with Syria for very many years, well over 40 years, and they don't want to be seen abandoning their allies in time of trouble because this would send a very poor signal to other countries that have reasonable relations with Russia, a feeling that the Russians are likely to scoot out any time there is trouble. And finally, of course, because the Russians have a very large arms trade with Syria and they don't want to find that the government is overturned and that the new government repudiates all these contracts and in fact doesn't pay them the large amounts of money that they are owed.
0: Is there any sign that the Russians are changing course with regard
1: to Syria? There have been a few signs. I think the Russians are deeply troubled by the way this thing is going. It reflects very badly on them, particularly in the wider Arab world, where the Russian vetoes at the United Nations have gone down very badly and there's been tremendous criticism of Moscow from many Arab states, which the Russians are quite unused to, having always posed as the champions of uh, national liberation and Arab aspirations, particularly in the conflict with Israel. Uh, And the Russians are unused to being cast as the bad guys. They don't like it. Uh, And I think they have begun to put pressure on Assad to negotiate. But in the present situation, I think that's out of the question for the moment. Uh, The Russians uh, also take a very uh, zero-sum game as regards the West. If the West is pressing for something that the Russians think will be to the West's advantage, the Russians will oppose it. And therefore, they opposed the two United Nations, well, I think there have been three United Nations resolutions in the Security Council on Syria, uh, and they then felt that that they were on Syria's side, and would have to champion. The only concession they have made was to agree to the Annan mission, Kofi Annan's mission, which was a way of putting pressure on both sides, but in fact that has now failed, yes. and Annan himself has pulled out. So the Russians don't really have much of a diplomatic track now to go down.
0: And what about Iran? Are there any rumblings within Iran or from the Iranian regime to push Iran to negotiations?
1: Yes, there are. And there are also for the same reason in Russia, because both countries are a little bit worried that if Assad falls, then all their own interests collapse with him. If they put all their eggs in one basket, if they back Assad to the hilt and uh, are 100% uh, against any negotiation with the rebels, then if the rebels win, they have lost everything. And for Iran, that would be pretty devastating because Syria is still its only window into the Arab world. The Syrians are the only Arab country who have good relations with Iran. And through Syria, the Iranians have been able to supply their allies in Lebanon, in Hezbollah, and to reach out into the wider Arab world. If that door is closed into Syria, they have lost everything. So the Iranians have put a lot of effort into Syria but at the same time they've tried to hedge their bets a bit by talking about possible coalition, uh, possible government of national unity, they've offered uh, themselves to be mediators, in other words they're looking to see whether they can build bridges now with the opposition. What potential solutions are there for the Syria conflict? Very difficult to see. Uh, The Anan plan was one solution but frankly it simply didn't work because both sides were so embattled. Both sides saw the fight as a fight for existence, particularly the government, that neither side was willing to make any concession and they were not willing to give the military option amiss. They still believed that this would be resolved by force of arms. So, as long as both sides think that that military uh, might will prevail, Uh, I don't see much chance for uh, diplomacy at the moment. Do
0: you think the opposition is making a mistake in in, uh, being so steadfast?
1: Well, in their terms, probably not, because at the moment they seem to have Assad fairly rattled. He's not yet falling. Uh, There's been a lot of optimistic talk in the opposition saying that the regime is crumbling, that people are defecting. Yes, there have been one or two defections, including a few high-powered defections, but actually As uh, Assad himself said in his television broadcast uh, just recently, uh, let them go. Uh, They are cowards. They are defecting. And in fact, I think that's very much the position. Uh, Those that don't don't have stomach for the fight, they're better out of it. And so Assad is now consolidating his loyalists around him. Uh, And I think he is actually not yet shaky. The problem is that the Syrian economy as a whole is in a ruinous state and quite quickly the whole country will, will basically collapse economically mm, and yeah, then yeah. Assad will lose the support of the minorities and possibly of the all-important merchant class who up till now have been backing him.
0: And Aleppo, the commercial capital, has, has, is very much um, in, in rebel hands. Am I not yes, concerned? it is. Well,
1: not completely mm. in rebel hands, but certainly uh, it's, it's unclear at the moment who controls Aleppo. It's certainly not fully in government hands and it's also true that Aleppo, as the main industrial or or commercial capital of the country, is a key city. The government cannot afford that to fall. If it does, then essentially uh, the beginning of the end has, has started.
0: Do you think it's already the beginning of the end?
1: Possibly. I would be a bit wary of forecasting an immediate collapse for Assad. Many people have said, well, he can't survive, but they've been saying this for some months and he has survived and he showed himself to be fairly cool and calm in his television interview. Now, if he was really rattled, I think that would have shown. What I do think was a very, very big blow for him were those uh, deaths that were caused by the bomb explosion, the slightly mysterious bomb explosion inside the top head- security headquarters, yeah. where many of his key advisors and security officials were meeting. He lost a number of very key figures to the regime. And if similar kinds of attacks can take place, then I think he will be in trouble. Britain,
0: as it happens, condemned that attack. Do you think Britain's being hypocritical in, in, in supplying equipment to the rebels while putting on a, a diplomatic front of opposing terrorist attacks like that?
1: It's very difficult. I mean, Britain, like most other Western countries, doesn't want to be drawn into this. There is a huge feeling of anger over what Assad is doing, condemnation of his tactics. Uh, The condemnation, I think, is genuine. The wish to supply equipment to help uh, the humanitarian efforts for the rebels is also genuine. And perhaps it's a little bit hypocritical supplying things like night vision goggles and uh, so-called non-lethal weapons when they know full well that the actual lethal weapons are getting in quite freely uh, from Qatar and Saudi Arabia over the Turkish border. But I think the West, as long as it's taking a slightly hands-off position, really doesn't have much option but to stand on the sidelines and voice moral uh, support for the rebels without going much further. So
0: do you think that uh, the present government is correct, more,
1: more or less, in, in, in its policies? Yes, but I have to say the policies are not very effective. I mean, if one looks at the alternatives, they probably all look worse Actual intervention, I think, would be a mistake. Uh, It is not yet at the stage where we are having, we're seeing a bloodbath. We're seeing some very nasty action. We're seeing some very grisly massacres. But we are approaching an area where uh, I think outside intervention would simply increase the fighting and wouldn't resolve anything decisively.
0: One of the potential solutions that uh, people are talking about is the, uh, the free Alawite state. Is that viable at all? Do you think that might happen?
1: It's completely unviable. Completely unviable. Uh, they did try it once. They tried it when the French had their mandate over Syria between the wars from 1920 until, well, until the Second World War, until just after. And in the early years of the French mandate, there was also tensions with the Alawites. And there was an attempt to separate off the coastal strip of Syria, the bit between Turkey and Lebanon, uh, as an Alawite stronghold, rather on the lines that Lebanon was split off as a Christian stronghold for the Christians in what was then greater Syria. Um, But the problem is, if you start doing that, then you would have a massive um, problem of Alawites outside the area, who would either face massacre or retaliation, you would have the same sort of problem that you had when trying to divide India when the British pulled out in 1947 where all the Muslims caught on one side and all the Hindus caught on the other side either had to move or were subject to the most terrible retributions and massacres and I think that's what would happen and also such a state would be too small and economically unviable.
0: The Alawites are already saying that they feel this this, this threat of retribution, and, and one of the terms he uses is, is, is that they're in a kill or be killed situation, uh, which is a justification that the, the Alawite Shabiha militia are using. Do you think that there is the potential for it to get very bloody with regard to the Alawites?
1: Yes indeed, and I think that fear is a very real fear. And it's uh, sadly because of the actions of the government and because of their intransigence it has come down to a threat for uh, a fight for survival, and that's very much how uh, those around Assad see it. It is a fight for survival, and they do fear that the longer it goes on, and of course the more people who are killed, and the more there is tribal vengeance sworn against the government, which is quite a strong factor still. Uh, the, the, the greater the danger of an indiscriminate massacre of the Alawite minority should the government collapse. So would you
0: say you're quite sceptical about a peaceful solution that satisfies
1: all parties? uh, Yeah, I'm not sceptical about the need to try for one. I'm simply fairly sceptical about whether any such solution is possible at the moment uh, with this present level of uh, hostilities, the present mistrust, and the present uh, despair of all parties, including the Russians, who I think in the end probably hold the whip hand in this, Uh, the despair of all of them about what they should do.
0: And on that desperate note, I think we should uh, finish that. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. There's a transcript and links to more information on our website, podacademy.org, where you'll also find lots more podcasts on a wide range of
1: subjects, from Bells to Bees and Rap to Charles Dickens.